0: Welcome to Sex Care is Self Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. Today we are discussing uterine fibroids with Dr. Michael Critchman and Dr. Jessica Shepard. Dr. Critchman, let's start with you. Let's let everybody out there know exactly who you are and what do you do on a daily basis.
1: Thanks, Patty. It's really wonderful to be here. I'm Dr. Michael Krichman. I am a sexual medicine gynecologist. I have a clinical practice at the University of California, Irvine. And um I'm fortunate enough to be on the medical advisory board for the Patty Brisbane Foundation. Very excited to be here on a day to day basis. I'm seeing a lot of women with a lot of medical problems, including fibroids and challenges that they may experience. So, very excited to talk about this topic today with you.
2: Dr. Shepard? Hi, how are you? I'm so excited to be here, Patty. My name is Dr. Jessica Shepard. I'm based out of Dallas, Texas. And I have a practice on my own, which is Sanctum Med and Wellness. And really, you know, as an integrative gynecologist, this is really focusing on menopausal health, sexual health, and I'm also a minimally invasive gynecologist affiliated with Baylor University Medical Center. And that's where I take my surgical skill and focus on uh, disease states that impact the pelvis, such as fibroids, endometriosis, chronic pelvic pain. And I am also the chief medical officer for Very Well Health. This is a online platform that has health information, which is trustworthy and reliable, and we really uh, focus our needs on um, being able to meet patients where they are when they need information.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here today. Dr. Shepard, can we start with you? Can you explain to our listeners what causes uterine fibroids and what is the risk factor of these?
2: Now, fibroids are the most common benign tumor of the pelvis, and they're made up of smooth muscle cells. That's what we know they're composed of, but you did ask the million-dollar question, which is, what causes them? Um, we know that they're very common, but as far as what really contributes to their growth, uh, in some women, they may get very large. and um, some women, they're very small, and you know they can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. Now, when we look at what exactly makes them grow, we know that it's multifactorial. So whether that's uh, through race, we know that black women are much more likely to have fibroids, but there are also some other contributing factors such as hormones, genetics, uh, lifestyle factors and so it really is um, something that we need a lot more research on and that's where I spend a lot of my time is working with organizations to make sure that we really put that effort towards research that's going to give us the data that helps us understand where exactly they come from.
0: It's so important to have that research so that you guys can you can treat uh, your patients and you can help them through these terrible crisis. Um, Dr. Critchman, what are some of the symptoms that a woman could be experiencing with fibroids and can they impact sexual intimacy?
1: Well, Patty, I think the important thing to remember is that many women have fibroids and they kind of sail through life and they don't even know that they have fibroids at all. So it really depends on where the fibroids are, the size of the fibroids, and the symptoms really boil down to a lot of pain and abnormal bleeding, and these can be severe and debilitating, really impactful. People are missing work, they're missing school, they cannot even get out of bed, and they're so uh, bleeding so much that they may even need transfusions, so again, Symptoms can be from mild to moderate to severe, but really when you have symptomatic fibroids, imagine these are gross in the, uh, in the pelvis. They can be impacting the bowel. They can be pushing on the, on the, on the um the bladder, they can be impacting the vagina. They certainly can impact intimacy. I mean, if you're bleeding heavily and you are anemic and you're fatigued and you're having severe cramps or pain, certainly sex is not the top thing on your list of things to do. Also important, we need to talk about fertility and other issues as well. I know we'll talk about that later on, but again, You know, I think it's really important to recognize that many women are suffering in silence, that they have these fibroids, they have these pain, they're not getting evaluated properly, they're not getting to clinicians like Dr. Shepard where they can get safe and effective treatment, which are really impactful. They really will change their overall quality of life, they'll change their bleeding pattern, they'll, you know, be much more social, and otherwise it'll be very impactful on their sexual function as well.
0: Wow, we do need to get to the bottom of all this. Dr. Shepherd, I've been told that there are racial disparities with fibroid diagnosis and treatments. Could you kind of elaborate on this and why?
2: How much time do we have? You you, go, you got it. No, and the reason I say that is because I would say that's a a focal point of what I speak to when I think about fibroids, because we know the pathophysiology of fibroids, we know how they impact women, and we know how they impact their their quality of life. But really looking at racial disparities, uh, education, awareness, advocacy, that's really where we miss a lot of women, um, because they are having these severe symptoms, such as uh, heavy menstrual bleeding, Um, abdominal growth because they're so large, Uh, infertility. And when we think of racial disparities, we know that 70% of African-American women have fibroids. Now, of those 70%, you'll have about roughly 30% who are going to have those symptoms. Now, what we have seen in literature is, you know, fibroids lead to the number one cause of hysterectomies. And so when we think about surgical uh, treatment, it's not to say that surgical treatment is wrong, but hysterectomy means we're removing the entire organ. And so you have seen a lot of women who are subjected to that form of treatment whether they're in their 20s, their 30s, 40s. And if you think of, we're talking about infertility um, or very severe symptoms, for women who are in their 20s or 30s and have only been given that option of a hysterectomy, you can see where I'm going with that, that that is uh, kind of a catastrophic uh, Option for a woman who hasn't even had the option to consider uh, having a baby. So, looking at it from that perspective, I think that there are multi layers to why we see such racial disparities uh, and health disparities and injustices, and that has to do with the healthcare system as well. I think the healthcare system really does have some responsibility in how we have access for patients who have these types of. Issues that are caused from fibroids, so having the acuity of care that they need, um, and also the education that's needed uh, in these communities. Because again, when hysterectomy was the only option mm-hmm. decades ago, we're starting to see that that's still the only option that's offered today. When we know that there's a wealth of treatments and modalities that can be used to treat fibroids. And last but not least, you know, just to keep it short, is the uh, when we think of healthcare industry, think of think of insurance. Um, and what I have seen in, you know, advocacy, and we've gone to Capitol Hill to really rally for more, uh, um, I guess you could say support when we think of women's health and fibroids, is that insurance companies will ne- not necessarily cover Newer modalities and technologies that are helping women with fibroids, and then we'll only cover hysterectomy. What we've seen is even in the southeast region of the US, uh, you know, that only hysterectomy is covered, whereas you go to other parts of the country and the same insurance company will then cover the newer modalities. So we really have to take a, a really close look at what we're spending our dollars on from a healthcare system and who has access to those resources in order for us to get to the bottom of why we're seeing racial disparities with treatment, specifically due to fibroids.
1: And I think the other important thing, Jessica, is that you're seeing disparities with treatment offered, right? Yep. So African-American women are preferentially offered surgical intervention rather than medical. And the other thing that I found quite interesting is about pain medication, that um, African-American women are denied pay- appropriate pain All the medication. Time. yeah. So again, I think we have to take a look at the, the healthcare care system and the clinicians and really demand that things start moving in the right direction. It's really quite frustrating that, you know, treatments aren't offered across the board or covered by insurance base. And there really is a lot of differential treatment and pain management especially. It was really troublesome.
2: And I think that, you know, as, as we are even speaking about that as physicians, is taking the accountability of bias that we have in how we see patients and how we meet them where they are. You mean even me as a female gynecologist I even have biases. Everybody has biases, but if we don't take account for what those are and making sure that we're addressing them, that's where we're going to miss patients.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I usually am a tertiary referral, so I see women that have already seen a surgeon, and I would say, you know, if you're holding a hammer, everything is a nail, right? So surgeons want to operate, and I see second and third opinions, and you'd be surprised how many women are not offered the whole gamut, Mm -hmm. and they're only offered one opportunity to you know kind of feel better and they feel really anxious that they don't have any other options and there certainly are a lot of medical treatments there's new innovative treatments that are coming down the pike there's new medications that are approved for fibroids and for pain management and it's very frustrating mm-hmm. right
2: i think you can uh, vouch with me that women are actually surprised when you bring up options and then we're surprised that they've never heard of it right it's kind of like this shock and awe look that we give each other (laughs) there
0: you go okay so how are fibroids typically treated and what are the potential complications of this treatment and what if somebody chooses not to treat
2: Yeah, I think that's an important, um, and I'll start with that, is that everyone always has the option to be conservative with their management. Um, And with that has to come, you know, these are, what may happen if you don't treat so specifically we're talking about people who have heavy bleeding um i have had patients who come to me and say i don't necessarily want any medical management or i don't want surgery yet they have anemia and so you really have to outline for them what the potential uh risk versus benefit is in in that instance and and that's where patient autonomy comes into play and it's it's a very um it's a very gentle uh, thing that we need to discuss with patients because we ultimately don't want to take that away from them. But on the other side, we really do want them to get the best care that they need. Now, we had alluded to earlier how to treat them. It's conservative, which we just spoke of. There's medical management. And you know, Dr. Krichman was saying that there are newer medications, which I'm so happy to see that there are medications that are specifically devoted to Heavy menstrual bleeding for women who have fibroids because typically what we've used in the past is some form of contraception which can help with bleeding but it wasn't made for fibroids; it was made for contraception. We just have figured out how that has been used very well in the past. But now we are having start new innovation in medical management, and then procedures. Procedures are things that we do that are same day. Patients can do them out uh, in same day surgery centers, or they go home the same day from the OR. And then you move into your uh, your surgeries, what we were speaking of earlier, which is your myomectomies, your hysterectomies, and you know, not to say, I, you know, I do want to preface with, hysterectomies are not a bad option. I just like to say that there are other options. So if someone, I have lots of patients who come in and they're like, I'm done. I really don't want any more bleeding. I just don't want a uterus anymore. And that's when you take that patient's experience and their journey and you say, okay, well, great. Let's let's move towards that. It's when we don't appreciate their journey and give them the full gamut of options. That's kind of where I right. see we miss that. And
1: can you do us a favor? Just explain the technical differences between a myomectomy. Yep, because and this and is record. on there. So okay.
2: I would love to know the
0: differences and the listeners, I'm sure yeah. would yeah. love to know, you know, like if I'm going to go to my physician, I'm having these problems. She can She can weigh these options with her physician and he'll know that or she'll know. But.
2: I would say for anyone who's listening, when they when you go in for a consult with a physician and it has to do with even if it's medical management or surgical, and you know, speaking to if you remove the fibroids just with a myomectomy, which keeps the uterus intact, versus a hysterectomy, which is removal of both the fibroids mm-hmm. and the uterus, is ask your doctor to draw it for you. I think pictures are worth a thousand words, and sometimes patients have. No idea of what we're explaining, because maybe we're not the best at explaining it. But when you see it, you both can agree that this is what's being done. And it makes such an impact when patients are able to ask better questions because they fully understand. So going back to the surgical, myomectomy is just removal of the fibroid, keeping the uterus intact. And hysterectomy is when you remove the uterus, most likely with the cervix as well. Keeping the ovaries right. there, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> we're, we have to go there because most people think a hysterectomy re- means you remove ovaries. That is not part of actual the name of hysterectomy. That's actually a completely separate name.
1: And I, I love your idea about the picture and I think it's really important for women to know where the fibroids are, right? Because the symptoms vary depending on the location. Are they inside the cavity? Are they inside the muscle? Are they outside the muscle, like on a, outside the uterus hanging like a little stalk? So again i think a picture is worth a thousand words and i always tell patients you know sometimes in that 15 minutes if you're lucky if you get mm-hmm. 15 minutes
2: <laughs> if you, you get, get very
1: anxious so <laughs> be prepared you know sit down before mark down your questions where are they what are my medical options what are my surgical options what are the complications when will this be done what are, you know outline all your concerns so you have a quick reference before you go in because in the acute crisis of a doctor's visit you may get flustered the doctor may get flustered you want to make sure that you have all your questions and i really appreciate it as a as a clinician when i go in and see somebody and she says look these are my questions this is my agenda i want to be empowered i want to take control over my destiny with this condition and you are gonna go on this journey with me. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way around, right? right? So I think it's all about empowering women to make good choices about their body.
0: I think it's important to be able to make those choices, but I would also probably, if I was sitting in that chair or on that table, I would also ask, what is your recommendation in my particular circumstances. So is that a fair question too to you know ask the doctor what their thoughts are?
2: I think that's a that's a good question but also physicians need to be careful not to place their personal opinion right. On that, but I think it's good to, to get and, feedback. I think and feedback is important. And I'd also say that
1: a good clinician is never afraid of a second opinion.
2: Yes, I send if my patient says I want more information or I have another doctor that my friends, I'm like, please go ahead. Yeah, I want you to feel so comfortable with your decision in the end because it's your health and your body. And,
1: and I would even go further that if you say as a patient, you know, I'd like to see another clinician for a second opinion, and you feel that the clinician is hesitant mm-hmm. or, you know, or dismissive, yeah. then for me that's a little bit of a red flag, mm-hmm. right? that you might be getting some biased information, or you might not be getting the whole story. So again, I think it's okay, I always, and I include that as part of my consultation. I say, because I'm tertiary referral, I said, look, I'm just your second person, if you want to see a third person, that's perfectly fine, I have no problem, here's a list of names, different areas, and I include male and female, Mm -hmm. because some people want to prefer one surgeon over the next. Um, And again, I think that a good clinician is not afraid of a second opinion, if you're balanced, and you're talking about all the options. When it becomes dicey is, you know, some surgeons, I know, and I'm not surgery bashing, but they love to do surgery, and they think surgery is great, and surgery is the only option. And surgery is a viable option, but it's not for everybody.
2: And I just wanted to also say for... Uh, physicians who might be uncomfortable with a second opinion, which again, I fully endorse second opinions, is also to make sure if there's a procedure or a medication that you're not familiar with from a provider standpoint, to send them to someone who is. I think that is a, a huge responsibility and that shows ownership as a physician that you're like, you know what, I don't necessarily do that procedure or, oh, I wasn't aware that this medication was on then find someone who does. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's always about the patient and making sure they get as much information as they need, as much educational uh, advocacy for them so that they can make the best decision.
0: There you go. Dr. Critchman, what are the potential medical concerns with respect to to fibroids, and can these turn into cancer?
1: Well, Patty, I think the important concept we talked a little bit about um, earlier is what are the immediate issues, you know, the pain, the heavy bleeding, the anemia, the transfusions, the loss of time from work, the social withdrawal, the effect on the relationship, intimacy. um, Those are paramount and, and certainly cross the line into medical concerns. I think the issue with turning to cancer, for me, I think that's, it does happen, but it's extraordinarily rare. Um, I think people need to have surveillance of their fibroids because fibroids do grow, and they can grow normally. Um, they can grow abnormally, um, and these may change at certain periods of time. Like you mentioned, like during pregnancy, you may have fibroids that increase in size, and depending on where they are, it may be impactful. It may um, be problematic to actually uh, conceive. It may be um very difficult to actually hold a pregnancy and you may have recurrent losses as well Um, some women sail through pregnancy with fibroids no issue no problem you can also have a fibroid that is degenerating which means it's kind of going through this process by which it can cause a lot of severe pain Mm -hmm. even during the pregnancy so again Pregnancy, infertility issues certainly of paramount importance, so I think I love that idea of getting a picture and knowing where your fibroids are and knowing how they're going to be impactful, because not all fibroids will impact you the same way, Mm -hmm. meaning like a fibroid that's in the cavity of the uterus may not affect you the same way as one that's on a stalk outside. Um, That one, which is on outside on a stalk, may twist and cause some severe pain. The one that's inside the muscle may cause other problems like severe abnormal bleeding. So again, knowing the size of the fibroids, the location, and monitoring I think is quite important. But again, the big ones are really bleeding, anemia, and poor management of pain.
0: Do you find these fibroids through an exam or... Are you, how are you finding these fibroids? That's a great
2: question. I've had uh, both present where a patient has an issue with bleeding, but on an exam you feel nothing. And then you do a ultrasound and you notice that they have fibroids, which are contributory to their bleeding. And that's why it's so important to listen to our patients because you may have a patient who has severe bleeding, but because you don't think you feel a fibroid on exam, then you may not start to investigate looking for a fibroid, which may be the cause, and vice versa. You have patients who have no idea that they have a fibroid, and you do you do their pelvic exam, and you're like, oh, there's something there. We need to investigate, and then you, you find out that there's a fibroid, and it really hasn't bothered them. So again, that goes towards if a patient uh, is symptomatic, meaning they're feeling it or they have bleeding, and if it's something that's impacting their quality of life. That's always an important feature of fibroids to recognize, Mm -hmm. is their quality of life factors. Yeah,
1: and I have a lot of women that come in and say, you know, my sister has fibroids, my mother has fibroids, my grandmother has fibroids. I'm convinced. I went to Dr. Google. I'm convinced I have fibroids because I have all the signs and symptoms. Can you check me out? I know you see the same thing. So again, I think clinical suspicion is really important, but also listening to your patient is even more important as well.
0: So, upon exam, if she's having all these symptoms and they're not finding any of the fibroids, can you, and the doctor says no, you're fine, you're great, you're good to go, could she request having?
2: Absolutely, I think that um, there, you know, that there are times when patients want. 5 million tests and labs and imaging, and sometimes we have to kind of weigh the options of, of why they're wanting it, um, how useful it can be, what are we really looking for, versus someone who is saying, I have, I'm having these symptoms, they're impacting me. And even though in that exam room at that time, you may not suspect that there may be what you think is there, what they're thinking, I think the patient does have a right to ask for imaging. And I think that's where the discussion comes. And I think that there are sometimes providers that are uncomfortable with having those discussions with the patient when they ask for something and you may not fully agree or understand where they're coming from. Start to talk to your patient and help them understand why they may need it or why they may not, but also asking or validating their question.
1: And I think you say, you know, having a a pelvic ultrasound is probably part of the comprehensive evaluation and assessment. And, you know, the imaging can be very, very important. And then you may need more detailed um, things like a CT scan or, or an MRI or what have you. But I think it's in the realm of reasonable, good, Absolutely. comprehensive care to get that assessment because you might have a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm-hmm. You might, you might want to say, OK, your pelvis is normal. You don't have fibroids. And let's go mm-hmm. down this avenue instead that can be attributed to your symptoms as well. So I think it's reasonable.
2: I think it's very reasonable, especially when you're thinking of ultrasound. If we we look at the layers of of imaging, that really is the most benign, cost-effective way of imaging. Because I'm telling you, I've seen so many patients come to me with their story and in my head, I'm like, oh, it sounds like they have fibroids. They've been to other people before. Have you ever had an ultrasound? No. I've heard that too. So you know that to me is very puzzling. So yes. I think it's so important
0: for our listeners to hear this today because a lot of times women are just looking for permission to Mm -hmm. say, I wanna go a step further. And if your physician is not open to this, you know, I'm all about find another physician, yeah. fire the physician, because if you, you've got to have somebody that listens to you and meets your needs. Um, I wanna thank my guests, Dr. Michael Critchman and Dr. Jessica Shepherd for a great, great conversation. And if you like what you heard today, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health and our focus areas, visit the Patty Foundation.org. Remember, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters.